Cal Cates. And I'm Kathy Ryan. Welcome to another episode of Interdisciplinary Heal Well's Healthcare Podcast. In this podcast, massage therapy educators, practitioners, and positive deviants, Kathy Ryan and me, Cal Cates, will use research, science, experience, and humor to explore the broad landscape of humanity, really. And, uh, you know, we certainly talk to people from different disciplines, and we really want to broaden your perspective about what's out there in terms of healthcare and, and how many things really are healthcare that we don't think are healthcare. You'll always learn something, you'll always laugh, and you'll come away better informed and with real things you can do in your own community and practice to create a more compassionate and collaborative system of care for all humans. Please be sure to go share us on social media, like us, give us the reviews, tell your family, tell your pets, make everybody you know come and listen to the show and spread the word. Uh, You can leave us a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you consume your podcasts. Thanks for listening. And now the moment you've all been waiting for this week's pun. I think you guys are going to like this one. What do you call a snake that's 3.14 meters long? A python. (laughs) (laughs) Woo! For the nerds out there. So, uh, Kathy, what's happening in British Columbia? Hey, I suck at math, but even I got that one. <laughs> See, I figured that, that that's sort of like a, a cultural awareness thing. You don't have to be good at math to get the pie jokes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, Canada is struggling. We're, yeah, it's not good up here. Uh, they've had a real hard time with getting vaccine rollout, and um, our numbers are the highest they've been, and hospitals in some places are at capacity, it's not a good situation. I am sorry to hear that. Yeah, we're um, we're we're still in a, a pretty good bit of denial here. Uh, I think our, our vaccination rates are going up in terms of total population percentage having been vaccinated, and there have been some interesting stories out in the last week or so about um, really looking at where is there legitimate vaccine hesitancy, and um, to the great surprise of many people, it's actually um, white right-leaning political men, uh, and that um, there's quite a bit of discussion about, um, A, of course, how can we depoliticize this whole conversation and really bring it back to health and safety, uh, but also that there are enough people in that demographic to really, if they continue to go unvaccinated, allow the variants to, to get a hold and to possibly put us back in a, a pretty rough situation. Um, but meanwhile, more and more people are flying more and more people are being invited to go back into their office settings. Um, so there's a real kind of a sense of the, I think, pandemic fatigue has turned into just straight up, it's all good, you know, and uh, and there's a, a momentum that I don't think we're ready for um, on a cellular level, honestly, um, but certainly not in an infection control and, and disease prevention level. So I think we're, we're far from out of the woods and it's going to be, you know, we're going to have to pay attention for quite a long time and keep masking. So that's where we are. And I would say that, you know, same situation up here, you know, vaccine hesitancy, same demographic up here, not at all what people tend to think in terms of vaccine hesitancy um, and similar situation where, you know, I've encountered a number of folks who after they got their vaccine, it was like a woohoo, now I can travel and go and do whatever I want and I won't have to wear a mask. And I'm kind of, uh, I don't mean to be Debbie Downer right. for you here, folks, but uh, 
you know, to take, take a look at some of this information that everybody is being told about the vaccine and how it works in the two weeks and the second dose and wearing a mask and still washing your hands and still socially distancing, you know, until we get these variants corralled in. But um, yeah, it's been an interesting human experience. Yes. And, and experiment. Yes, an experiment, unfortunately, to be yeah. participating. I don't remember signing an informed consent to be part of this experiment, but it turns out here we are. Yeah. Um, so we have with us today, I am very excited to introduce our guest, uh, Jan Booth, nurse extraordinaire, and uh, so many other things. And I am sure that the topic of, of COVID will come up as we discuss, but that will be far from all that we'll talk about with Jan. Um, you can read her big fancy bio, as always, in the show notes. But Jan, welcome to Interdisciplinary. Tell us why we should listen to anything you're about to tell us. <laughs> oh, because I'm a good friend of yours. That, that gives me that gives hey. me cred right away. That's right. Done. Done. Sold. Yeah. So we have had some interesting conversations over the years. I think Cal, you and you and me, and and often it's around um, end of life, but usually there's a bigger picture. And I'm fascinated by the big picture of how does dying, where I have spent most of my nursing career in the world of serious illness and end of life, how does dying fit into healthcare? What, you know, instead of it being a mistake or an aberration, how do we bring dying more into the center, uh, not only of our, of our healthcare system and look at it differently and support it and uphold it differently, but how do we, how do we, um, bring it more into the center of our communities. So I've had a career that has gone a number of interesting ways related to opening up the conversation about end of life, which as I'm sure any of you listening know is a big taboo in in many of our uh, societies and cultures. Absolutely. And so what are you doing now with um, end of life stuff? Cool stuff. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. Um, I I'm someone who likes to track uh, cultural changes, innovations, the edges of where the culture is transforming, and so I've taken that interest in um, watching how the world of end of life care is changing and transforming. And it's a great advantage of someone who has been working in this for decades. So I, I have this kind of wonderful, to me, it's wonderful perspective of having started in hospice when it was in its earlier stages and um, seeing that it came out of the grassroots. It came out of um, people sitting around kitchen tables. It came out of hearing about this place in London, which the mothership hospice was often the, you know, the instigator, the example for other people, but it came out of churches and kitchen tables and created this whole kind of care. And then over time, like happens, um, it became more and more a part of the healthcare system, which is very much a biomedical model. And so it seemed to have maybe shifted and lost some of its more, um, uh, maybe more of the, the spiritual or communal collective parts of dying as it became more institutionalized. And so the original disruptor then becomes part of the institution. So what I'm really interested in is, and where I am right now is seeing, okay, where are the new voices and where's the new growth coming? And 
So one of the many places in end-of-life care where change and transformation is happening is again coming from the grassroots. And it's in the form of lay people who are wanting to be part of a different conversation about end-of-life. It's not coming from the, the healthcare community for the most part. And so one piece of that is this new role that is emerging um, called a death doula, which is uh, inspired by birth doulas. And um, some healthcare people are drawn to it, but mostly it's lay people who have had some kind of profound experience around dying. And uh, usually it's a profound experience of seeing the possibilities, seeing it differently, seeing what can happen when there is a more open conscious response to it. So I teach in a, uh, for an organization called the Conscious Dying Institute, which is uh, taking people who are feeling this call, many of whom, by the way, unexpectedly, like I never thought I'd be doing this. You know, I was doing real estate or uh, I'm an attorney or, you know, I'm a massage therapist. I never thought I would be doing death doula work, but taking, um, I, lo I love working with people who are coming with that calling and helping to both keep that inspiration alive in them, but really ground it from the years that I've had as a nurse working with people who are dying. So that's one of the one of the things that I'm doing right now that I'm really enjoying uh, as I see this grassroots transformation manifested in each of these people coming through the the program. It's fascinating. Yeah, I know that you know you you reference Jan some of the interesting conversations we've had, and and they have been many. But some of the more heated conversations we've had have actually been about this whole death doula movement because it it just pushes every one of my sheriffy control buttons about you know having having seen people come through our courses who have as you said had a really powerful experience with death or cancer or whatever and and the way that that inspires people to feel like they can now serve in an expert role um to help people navigate this challenging and unknowable situation and that i feel like our job as educators and i imagine you guys do this in the conscious dying institute is to say so you saw one death where you were, you know, influenced by one death. And, and like you said, keeping that calling alive, but also saying like, so what is your job here as a doula? It's not actually to be the expert on death and dying. And how do we talk, tell me about that and how you guys address that in your course and, and what do you see in, in sort of newly zealotized people who are excited <laughs> to be a part of this? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think the, the, the primary place to start is that with this calling, to me, the responsible next step is to do deep inner work so that then that light shines back on myself, not just on my desire to serve and be with others. That, that We'll deal with that later, but starting with myself. So what is it that I'm bringing into this of my own worries, anxieties, fears about aging, about diminishment, about serious illness, about uh, caregiving, about being cared for, about dying, about death, about what happens afterwards, all of that. It's like, I need to really be an aware person about what I'm bringing of my own potential biases, um, myths, misconceptions. And so any program that I would want to be a part of, and I know that this is true for the work that, that you do, Cal, 
has to start with that self-awareness, self-development, deep dive. And so a lot of that is creating a space, you know, which is now online, fascinating thing that we never thought would happen. You know, ours was a, a highly experiential on-site program. And so we've switched it all online. So creating a space where that deep dive is the norm, is supported, is made uh, safe so that the vulnerability that naturally comes with that kind of exploration is supported. So that would be the first thing is, is um, know thyself. And then there's a, there's a lot of, of skill building around um, what it means to be compassionately present, compassionately present. And certainly a huge piece of that is who is the me coming into this with all my own you know, filters and biases and all of that, but also what does it mean to be able to sink into what seems so simple and apparently for all of us is fairly complex, and that is to be fully embodied in the present moment with another person without needing to fix whatever suffering might be here. Yeah, so it sounds simple, and that's the, you know, I feel like that's, probably one of the bigger ahas for a lot of people is on one hand, how simple the skills I'm going to be developing are <laughs> that actually it turns out that's huge to be able to be present and how, how complex it is. And, you know, people who come into the program with years of mindfulness and meditation and <clears throat> their own skill development and self-development maybe have a little extra um, lead time on yeah. that. Yeah. But, but um that's the depth of skill that I think is what's most needed because the, the doula role is not a medical role. Right. Unless you come in with nursing training or you come in as a nursing assistant with training or um, et cetera, you know, it's not. It really is a, a guide, witness, supporter, holder of space. Um, and so, and there's a, a lot of ways people go with it. Some people want to do more of the actual vigil time at end of life, supporting the family, particularly families, uh, people who are dying, who don't have uh, a big support system. Um, and then there are people who are drawn more to the after death care, you know, this whole blossoming and renaissance of innovative home funeral um, preparation of the body, the family involvement or friends involvement in that whole piece, the green burial movement, all of this is kind of happening at the same time. So there's some doulas who are really drawn to that. And some doulas are drawn to the, to the idea of um, what can happen when you are able to be with someone much earlier in the trajectory of illness, right? So this is the thing where hospice and doulas are, have been kind of dancing around each other to figure out how do we work together? Who are you? What do you do? You know, and there's a natural kind of, can be a natural kind of, um, you know, the disruptor looking at the institutionalized folks yeah. saying, yeah, we're, we get what you do, but we're doing something different. And the institution going, whoa, wait a minute, you're coming into just like you were saying, Cal, you're coming into this really intimate time and complex time in someone's life with like a weekend program. So it's beautiful to watch how more and more we're, we're finding common ground. And here's a very practical piece. If we know that the average length of stay in hospice is still, you know, what, 10 yes. days or something, yes. right? Yes. Then 
there is a whole lot of time. If most of us are dying slowly, there is a whole lot of time that we're not representing through our healthcare system because our healthcare system, at least in the States, is very driven towards treatment and not dying. So yeah. who is it? Like, where is it in the culture that we support people to really live with diminishment and loss and, and build skills and capacities because it's not happening most places. Um, so there is a role for a doula much earlier, you know, in looking at intentional living of this last part of my life. And some of that involves legacy work. Like, what do I want to leave behind? What are the things that families regret? Oh, I wish we had talked about that, but no one wanted to talk about it. So we never got to hear the stories. We never got to look at the pictures. We never got to really say, mom, what has been most important to you in your time here as a human on the planet? You know, you know that kind of ethical will or more of a, a different kind of legacy than things. Yeah. So, well, and it's interesting that you you talk about, and this is where I think that our our intolerance for nuance um, is needs to be looked at because you talk about how this is not a medical role, but it is a role that can improve outcomes if we're going to go with like sort of the the vernacular of the system. And when you talk about the sort of disruptors coming into the institution, I I, I see all the massage therapists we've worked with and how much you know, there is a sense of like a chip on the shoulder, like, no, no, what I do is heart centered and, you know, is antithetical to what's been created here. And and that part of our job as educators is to say, so, A, you're going to catch more flies with honey. And so if you show up and tell these people how jacked up their system is and you're here to save them, chances are good, they're going to close the door on you. Yes. But that means that they're also going to close the door on your opportunity to serve patients. And that, you know, we're just so we are moving, I hope, into a place in healthcare where like for Healwell, the research that we're really focusing on now is moving away from simple measures like pain and anxiety and more to how does your whole life go better, even if there's only a week of it left, if you have a different experience and that what happens when a massage therapist comes, what happens when a, a doula is part of your process is that Maybe you need less acute medical care. Maybe there are less unplanned medical encounters, as they're called. And how do we mobilize around this idea that lay people are not a threat to what have been considered healthcare providers? And I think there's a real turfiness there that, we ha that we're going to have to work through. Yeah, and you all have been so... Uh... To me, you all have been real leaders in in keeping these conversations open between you know healthcare practitioners of all different backgrounds, and I think that's the key. Uh, that's certainly what I have seen to be effective in the world of um, the death doulas, end of life doulas, death midwives, and the the more institutionalized healthcare. And it's interesting to see that a number of the death doula programs um, were started by hospice nurses, um, you know, uh, who I think could see and I, I would include myself in that. I think being able to see um, the benefits and the burdens of each of the systems we come from and a commitment to wanna work on the side of benefits. So what is it that I bring as a hospice nurse of what I've seen, of what I know of the system, of what I understand of where people may have come as they have been dealing with the treatment of their disease and what that might be like for them. And then the benefit of someone who comes not from that system, who comes with 
new eyes, fresh eyes, uh, a different training and background. And it it's kind of, in some ways it's, it's a new model and in some ways it's a really old model. That's how I look at the, the, death, the death doulas. We have had healers and midwives and wise people um, uh, throughout all time from what we can tell that comes through oral history. You know, who are the people in the community who seem to have gifts or capacities to be with others? Either they had healing touch, they understood energetics, they understood plant medicine, they were there at times of transition, the birth, the sickness, the death. And so um, some of what's fascinating to me about this that I, and one of the reasons I really wanted to be part of this death doula training is that to me, this is a really positive sign for our culture that we're, you know, the initial disruptor was healthcare. And thank goodness, you know, that all of us, you know, hospice nurses and social workers and chaplains and others could be part of really breaking into the healthcare system and saying hospice is a thing that belongs here. But now we're in a different place. And so the breaking up needs to come more from lay people who are like seeds planted all around our different communities, so that we have people in each of our communities who are that safe place to go, who are that informed place, who have developed capacities to, and they don't have to be death doulas, but you know, I mean, you see it in the work that, that you all do. How do we culturally train ourselves to, into capacities that many of us have lost? And it can come in so many different ways. I don't claim that it's all just coming through death doulas, but that's one place where I saw I could be a part of that in wanting to amplify um, what does it mean for a community to care for its members differently? Because the isolation of someone dying just in their little nuclear family without being able to talk about it, that breaks my heart more than anything. And truthfully, that's what propelled me out of away from the bedside after years at the bedside was, wait a minute, why is family after family after family coming so unprepared? so unaware of what is possible. So yeah. everything is so tragic. What well, else might there be? Well, and I have to wonder, you know, with everything we've seen with COVID, where there has been people who have not, you know, in the early stages of this, where family mm -hmm. were not allowed access to family members who are dying. I have to wonder if potentially this might be a catalyst to kind of stop us all on our tracks and think for a moment, what does that mean you know, in that process and, and going forward, how can we do this process differently? That is a great question. And that, that overlay of what has happened during COVID has been very interesting to, to watch in the end of life world, you know, to watch the kind of like shock of, wait, how do we do this? How do we grieve? How do we have open communication? How do we do advanced directives? How do we, you know, it's all gotten shaken up. And so it's been interesting to see the people who have become, uh, you know, someone has the wisdom or the insight to say, we can still do this. What if we do this? And then that, that innovative funeral home person, for example, says um, to his or her colleagues, we can do this. Um, yes, we can use the virtual world. Yes, it seems like it's antithetical to everything we know about people need to be together to grieve, but we can't. But what's the spirit behind being together? 
You know, what is the collective look like virtually? And what is it that we're trying to to capture in this moment of honoring this person and of being able to have a place to to hold the, the grief? And it turns out that there is a virtual piece to this that that can still happen. And that's just one one part of it. But I'll say one other place that I have been fascinated by is um, this idea of dying alone. You know, so much of what we do in the hospice and palliative care world and in the death doula world and other places is that we don't want people to be alone, that there's something about being a witness somehow to that. So now we have these situations where people are dying alone or they're dying with their families on an iPad on the other end or a phone, or they're dying with the healthcare people who've only known them for a few days there. Right. Um, And so I think it's requiring us yet again to think very differently. It's like you're saying, Kathy, like, how can we do this better? Um, If we set it up as the only quote good death and I don't, I put that, you can't see me with my fingers and with my audio, but you know, I'm really careful around things like dying well and good death because it's just yet another imposition of. But if we say that uh, a, a healthful way to die is to not die in isolation, then we're setting ourselves up for this person who's dying alone or dying in a COVID ward to, for that to be a failure. So some of some of the to me more um, insightful podcasts or blog writing or editorials have been around um, what if how do we connect with each other when we can't physically be together? Like, what is your own understanding of that? You know, does that just seem like bullshit, you know, and that it's that's not even possible or for some people, it's really stretching them to think about the energetic ways, the non-physical ways that we support and love and care for each other. And so that's that's just an interesting conversation right there. Like, what do I believe if I can't be with my mom? Uh, as I couldn't for many months, you know, how do I support and be with her in in a new in a new way? And I don't have a lot of answers for that. I have my own journey with it, but I just like the fact that we're having to really look at what do we believe about ways that we deeply connect with one another without being in person. And Jen, I just want to go back to what I think is a really important point that you made is that I think one of the things that for me, I, I value and think is important is, is to be able to have those conversations well before so that you get a sense of what that individual wants. There may be some people who would prefer to not have family members around in their final moments of death. You know, that might be someone's preference. So I think we shouldn't make an assumption that everybody wants their family gathered around them, holding their hand. There might be some folks that really don't want that. So that's where I think having those conversations with the people that we care about um, and asking them, what do you want? You know, what is your, what is your preference? Not what I, what I think you should have or what so-and-so wants you to have, but what do you want? Yeah. That's such a good point. And clearly that's true, Kathy, because it happens over and over again, that a family has been intensely vigiling with someone who's dying 
all the grown kids are around mom and no one has left the bedside. And then this one two minute period when the hospice nurse says, come out here and let's just talk for a minute mom dies, yeah. you know, so I, I, you know, I think any of us who've been around, you know, a, a variety of deaths have seen how common that is. So I think that's a really important point. One thing I really appreciate about the, what the death doula role is opening up, and, and this is probably going to morph again and be called other things and, and, and hopefully just become more and more a part of a norm that you don't even have to have a death doula do it, but maybe within our friends and family, these conversations happen more authentically and nor, uh, naturally that we don't have to have other roles doing it. But but in the death doula work, at least through the organization I work with, there's there's an initial kind of almost it, it it's really a coaching conversation with people long before they're dying from anything serious, you know, yeah. like we would do right now. Yeah. But looking right at what would be most important to you in the last weeks or months of your life, and what does that mean if that's your vision of what's most important to you? What does that say about how you're living now? Because to me, that's one of the best kept secrets that I wish wasn't a secret. And that is that looking squarely at our mortality changes how we live. So that it's yet another reason to open up the conversation and bring fresh air in. And then there's that coaching conversation with someone who it may be years and years from their dying, but that gets things moving and thinking about things, right? And then there's uh, uh, something in, in our program we call a vigil interview, which is then as someone is more seriously ill, revisiting what's important to you, but it may look different now, but an important piece of it are the questions of who would you want there? You know, what kind of presence is important to you? Some of these questions are even woven into something like the five wishes document, which is a really good you know, advanced directive conversation starter. You know, like touch, is touch important to you? Would you prefer not to be touched? Do you like music? Do you want quiet? Uh, do you want to be home? Is that going to be too hard to be home? So all the assumptions we might have about what a lovely kind of hallmark end of life looks like um, could be totally 180 from what this person wants. So it every one of these things involve questions and reflection. There's no way around it. I can't intuit what Cal wants unless Cal says to me, you know what, it turns out this is really important. I thought it was this, but this is really important. Can you help support that to happen? So those are the the skills in anything we're doing, working with people towards end of life, the skills of being able to ask open questions in a safe environment and be able to deeply listen. Yeah. And staying in re real time contact. I mean, I think this is what you're talking about is like, I feel like one of the the hallmarks or the the backbone of, of any training like this is to sort of as much as possible train addiction to certainty out of people, you know, oh. because we want to have that one conversation where we go, oh, I just talked to them. We checked all the boxes. This is what they want. And then exactly as you said, like next week, their swallowing doesn't happen anymore. And so everything they wanted when they could still swallow isn't the same anymore. But we have to say so things have changed a little bit and it appears that your disease process is progressing toward dying and, you know, to practice saying like it, not it's getting worse or it's, you know, like not sort of pussyfooting, but really saying like we're, we might be looking at, at weeks here. What do you want those weeks to look like? And, you know, when I think about how doulas could really 
connect with hospice, this idea that you suggested that the doulas would be a part of the disease process or just the dying process, which, as you said, starts so much sooner than we acknowledge. You know, I, I often tell the story, Jan, that um, that you told me about when your mom decided to give up her keys um, and that you and your sisters, like you, you had a ritual with your mom where she sort of like surrendered her keys and she made this decision. And she wasn't dying by sort mm-hmm. of cultural standards at that point, but that was a death. That was the beginning of the end of her autonomy in a way that could have led to more conversations. And in your family, I'm sure it did. But for most people, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't do that. And and when we look at that limited length of time people spend in hospice, doulas could be a great bridge because, you know, Ira Biox's famous quote is that it's always too much until it's too late. Oh, yeah. People are constantly like, we're not, we're not to that place yet. And it's like, yes. what has to happen before oh. you decide that you want more support? Because that's really what this is. But we don't think of it that way because it's a brand new concept that's introduced when we're in a traumatic situation. That's right. Oh, I just love everything you just said because it speaks to this idea that is very meaningful to me that we practice long before our time of death and that those practices all we have many opportunities in our lives as a human to have loss, to have grief, to have new beginnings, to have uncertainty, to have fear, right? So that, you know, I think this is a very old idea that you find in a lot of wisdom and spiritual traditions, which is there are practices that we can intentionally do that will serve us when we are then at what is a pretty profound letting go. I don't downplay at all, even as someone who's been around this for decades. Oh my goodness, it can shake me in my boots when I think about my my time. You know, this uh, this is an incredible thing that we're being asked as humans. You know, come incarnate. However, this is just I'm using words that are meaningful to me, but come incarnate into this human life. Two feet in, whole body, spirit, mind, soul in, love everything, live fully. And then, by the way, we want you to then let every bit of that go. Everyone you've loved, everything you've loved, every regret, every part of you you wish you had. Yeah, then you're going to let it go. So, I mean, there have been many people who have spoken to that. I think of, you know, Frank Ostaseski, who says, you know, this work is too big to be doing on your deathbed. So, you know, when you say that, Cal, about, um, you know, it's not time yet. Oh, my gosh, how many times have I heard that? So don't use the word because it's not time yet. And I'm, you know, that's the 180. I'm 180 away from that idea. I'm, I want to talk about it yeah, <laughs> and not necessarily like you're dying physically at end of life all the time, but I really want to talk about how do we build the ability to be fully in the moment and be willing at the same time to let it all go. And I mean, I know that, that I'm, I'm more of a geek around that and that most people would rather not. <laughs> talk about that but I you know okay so let's talk about other things but when are you gonna talk, when are you gonna talk about it yeah well I it's mean, like the it's like the it's not time yet you know same thing I mean it's like well you know when I get closer well how much closer does that bus have to get to you like we're not all gonna have a lengthy dying process that will allow for forgiveness and release and whatever you know it could yeah. honestly happen at any moment and yeah. are you are you ready how tightly are you holding on well, and if we're all addicted to certainty, that's one certainty we all share. 
Yeah. <laughs> Every there single you one. Go. Amen. There you Amen. go. But Amen. that's such a good point, Kathy, because that is something that we all know and it's sometimes acknowledge. But then it seems to stop there for many of us. It sort of stops there. Whereas there, there are probably all of us on this call, you know, are interested in actually, I would like to dive into that a little more since we know that that that's true. And there's so many layers to it. I mean, there's, I mean, that's why I think, like you said, Cal, these conversations are not a one-time thing, not only because we change and evolve in our thinking and our feeling, but also because it's not just about, do I want to have my pain heavily managed or do I want to keep myself as alert as possible? That's a huge one. Yeah. It's not just, you know, the living will part of, do I want to treat when I am in a, a comatose state or I'm in a state where I'm not going to be improved. I mean, those are huge questions. There is so much more than that yeah. because it's like the quality of the dying experience, the quality of the end of life is so much more than just those basic questions. But in our, in our healthcare system, we have to start with those really basic questions because that's the default. You know, we tend to pretty heavily medicate and we tend to treat, 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 treat and not let you die. So those, boy, totally respect for dealing with those. But, you know, any of us who have been around deaths that had a real quality of life to them and ends of lives that where we've said, that's, that's how I want to be able to do it. I want to invite other people in. I want to really be able to live, not fake live, like pushing myself to do stuff I can't physically, but more like just really be more and more fully human, you know, in the last time. And so how are we going to do that if we don't talk about it and practice and look at the people who are, who may be a kind of guiding light for that? Yeah. Well, and the going, you know, we talk so much about these problems that seem insurmountable and how important it is to go upstream. And mm -hmm. I wonder if this is a, a, a good place for you to talk about, or if it's useful to talk about your integrative nurse coaching work and how, you know, well, I'll just leave it to you to talk about. Yeah. That. Yeah. I think a couple things came together for me uh, as a nurse, two great frustrations. One was seeing the system of how we die. Um, and then also seeing the system of uh, a very limited use of, of medicines and approaches to, to disease and illness. And so I was very drawn to a more integrative or holistic approach to what health is. Um, and I have continued to be amazed that, that rarely is food talked about and uh, how someone's spirit is talked about on annual visits, you know, still in 2021. So, you know, from the early times of my nursing, I've been drawn towards a more integrative approach that looks at the whole being and with a little bit of skepticism about how easy it is to throw medications um, at, at a problem. Um, and I've also... Um, been really drawn to this idea of um, the person in front of me is the best assessor of what matters most to them. So I had been working as a hospice nurse, I'd been working as a holistic nurse and integrative nurse. And then when I when I came into a coaching program, uh, it really made sense to me like, that coaching, which, which has many other names, but the advantage is people kind of know what a coach is. Coaching perspectives 
are a really lovely way of helping to keep the focus and the responsibility on the person themselves. And so after this coaching program that had mostly focused on nurses being part of a new paradigm of health by bringing in a coaching perspective and an integrative perspective, I thought, well, here am I, uh, who is really devoted to end of life. How can I bring together an integrative approach that looks at body, mind, spirit, looks at all the influences on health and well-being? with my passion for end-of-life care. And that's where I saw that I could be of service as a nurse bringing all that together to help families and individuals to talk more openly about what matters most to them, whether it's in how they're living right now and looking at health practices, um, places where they're struggling, either with illness or limitations or diminishment, um, but also with an eye on more open conversations, more support, more awareness of what's out there uh, as options. And um, that for me has been an, an interesting role. It's also led me into a lot more teaching over the last number of years um, because I realized that this perspective that I have, and maybe this is part of being a young elder, you know, at my my age and, and looking back, that, that I can offer this in a teaching role and a guiding role to other healthcare practitioners, to other nurses, uh, to nurses who are saying, I'm leaving nursing because I'm working in a broken system and I don't know what to do. And I can reflect to them, there are other ways we need to be pioneers, as you all know, in the ways that you're pioneers also. So this role of integrative nurse coaching is really bringing a lot of things together um, to to support people to be more fully in their lives and more fully awake to the preciousness of life and more aware of how important intention is as we move through serious illness. Well, it's such an important thing you said there that I, I think I think it's easy for people who have that sort of knee-jerk fear around death and dying to to feel like it's just a, a turn of phrase or a trick of wording, but it is about, I think you said, encouraging families to talk about what matters most. Yeah. It's not, so if you get sick, do you want a ventilator? If you get sick, do you want artificial nutrition? Like, we're going to get to those questions through your answers to these other things. But what we really want to do is like, are you living now? Yeah. And what would it look like to live? And what are the things that you really want to prioritize, whether you have 40 years or four days? How do we talk about what life is like and that, you know, that hospice slogan of it's about how you live. And again, it, it sounds like window dressing, but that's really, I mean, Dame Cicely Saunders, like she came up with the idea of total pain, which was, it's not just physical, it's spiritual, it's emotional, it's cultural. Like it's, it's the whole experience of being a person that we want to interact with and support. And I, I feel like if there was a way we could get through that message that, paying attention to the, the, the permanence of an end to this thing at some point yes. actually makes this whole thing more fun, even when it sucks. <laughs> Th that's it right there. And so yeah. how do we hold that? Right. And, yeah. and you know, how many times have we heard, or maybe, maybe any of us listening or those of us, even the, bet between the three of us, you know, have felt an urgency to address this because of something that happened in our life, the sudden death of someone dear to us, uh, a serious diagnosis, right? There's an urgency that comes with that, like, oh my God, 
I have an opportunity here like to really decide what's important to me because I don't have a lot of time. How do we keep that sense of urgency in daily life? When we fall asleep, we get comfortable. I don't want to stretch. That's too much work. I mean, I feel all of that. You know, sometimes I joke that I've had to spend decades in end of life work to have like, you know, my impermanence right in front of me because I can fall asleep so easily. It's not that I'm any wiser. It's that I probably need more reminders than the average person. Yeah. <laughs> um, because that's often what is really compelling about working in hospice, particularly you hear this from hospice volunteers who may have come from non, you know, healthcare backgrounds, that being around people who have limited time wakes you up as well, right? if you're willing to be woken up. So, yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's so much more than the question about ventilators and the question about who's going to speak for you. And that is crucial because so much suffering happens when that isn't clear. But it's it's so much more than those questions. And it makes sense that in a in a healthcare system that focuses heavily on biology and the, the, the biomedical model, that the questions that come up most significantly are going to be biomedical questions: ventilator, drugs. Yeah. Um, artificial nutrition, the heart, nutrition, keep the heart going. Right, exactly. Yeah. And um, so, so I think in general, it, this is about living a more integrated, integral, integrative life where we're asking all along these questions. Uh, it's not just suddenly I get a scary diagnosis that I go, oh my God, I, I'm body, mind, and spirit. You know, how am I? How am I using this time? Yeah. Um, Anyway, there that you know you can you can see that I'm 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 really interested in those big questions. I can't help it. I'm wired that way, and um, so I can be kind of a bore, you know. And I can sort of you know like, what do you do at the cocktail party? You know, yeah, um, no, <laughs> you know, and it it you know it's so much more than who gets your stuff. Um, oh, we're yes. going through the process of of updating our will right now. So, you know, this has been, I, I think I owe you for a therapy session, Janet, because <laughs> no, no. <laughs> because it, 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 it really has given a lot of, you know, um, information for me and, and just, you know, stimulated a lot of thought about, yeah, it's so much more than who gets your stuff. You know, yeah, it, it really is about, you know, about how do I want to live going forward? And right up to the moment that I suck in that last breath, I'm still living. So That's right. how do I want to do that? That's right. And and you're still living and there are still possibilities for healing, for letting go, for forgiveness, for love, for gratitude. You know, all those really, really crucial things are possibilities, no matter how we've lived the rest of our lives, up until that last breath. And some people would say after after as well. Um, and, and, you know, truthfully, Kathy, I see myself more than anything as a conversation starter, a conversation opener. It just, it comes out in a lot of different ways, some very practical, some hands-on, uh, some with individuals, some with families, some teaching in front of doulas or nurses who are in a coaching program or workshops. But really at the heart of it, I feel like what I'm doing is um, hopefully inspiring a different conversation and planting those seeds. You know, I, I may never see, unless you had said that, Kathy, you know, I, I don't know how this, how it's landing and what someone does with it. And I'm the same way. I mean, I'm taking advantage of seeds that are planted all around me as well. Um, and, and 
that's the most I can figure out when we're talking about something as profoundly a taboo and death denying as talking about dying in at least in the in the United States uh, and I know that probably we share that in North America but um, it has to to me what is going to be the really significant long lasting sustained change is going to be in all these little seeds planted uh, for a much bigger conversation which is how do we live with impermanence? How do we live as fully as possible? How do we learn the skills of being human that involve things like forgiveness, love, care, um, humility, <laughs> gratitude, right? And how do we practice those enough so that in the last part of our lives, it's not such a surprise because guess what? In the last part of our lives, we don't have as much energy. And our world tends to get smaller in some sense because I can't handle as much as I could before. So. Yeah, we have a lot of, a lot of work to do in, in shifting and softening our perspective and, and, and I guess really getting honest about, well, all kinds of things. <laughs> but about all kinds of things, right? Yes. Yes. Well, and from, you know, this is the work that, that, that you all are doing. And I, I know more, Cal, about the work that you're doing than Kathy, but I can, can surmise, you know, it, it, in my little trajectory of life, it comes out in a certain way, primarily through end of life and in some particular ways. But there are countless ways of doing this work. Um, so the bigger picture work we're talking about, about coming into a fuller sense of being human in the best sense of that word um, and helping this life on this planet to be sustainable, where we care for each other, where we have an understanding of what what it means to care for the earth. I mean, it's all connected to me. This isn't just about how individuals die. This is, this is all connected in a, a kind of reverence for... Um, what is what is possible when we care for each other and care for the planet? Well, and that takes me right back to sort of the beginning of this conversation, Janet, and you were talking about compassionate presence. And as as a massage therapist, I'm I'm known as a total science nerd bag, uh, particularly in the realm of fascia and scar tissue, and you know love the science stuff. But you know, one of the things that I always emphasize uh, when I'm presenting or teaching is that for me, being present with the patient is number one. Above and beyond all the sciencey bits and pieces, as fascinating as that is to me, you know, and I've often thought as a massage therapy educator, that ought to be a course. Compassionate presence ought to be part of the massage therapy education and training. So can amen. we can we can we get you to write that course for our oh, amen? I think I think you've already got it partly written, if not totally written. But um, yeah, and I would say the same, Kathy, for nurses and social workers and chaplains and physicians and uh, you know go on and on. Police officers, that, yes, absolutely. <laughs> this is, I mean, imagine what the shift in each of these professions or roles. Imagine what the shift might be if we had even 10% more compassionate presence with each other, let alone 40 or 50 or 75% more. Yeah. Yeah. And yet it's, you know, so often dismissed or it's a soft skill or 
it's like the dessert, you know, it's like, it's nice if you have time. And I think what a lot of us are saying is actually, it turns out it is the essential ingredient. And then everything else is, is around that, especially when science and medical care, quote, can't do any more, you know, it's like you get banished when you're dying to the to the pasture because we can't do any more. And it's like, are you kidding? We can do so much. And in fact, if we had brought in more of those qualities earlier on, it might have helped this experience to be more of a healing. And I don't mean curing, but more of a healing experience. Um, so I love that you said it. To me, it's it's essential development of that quality. Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting, you know, um, in some cultures, I'll use the indigenous uh, culture. Um, traditionally, people didn't necessarily choose their job within their community. You know, a very wise people within their community would recognize certain gifts or traits in an individual from a very young age. And then they were nurtured and that was cultivated as, you know, say the person who was worked with the plants in their community. Someone just didn't raise their hand and say, oh, I want to do that. Essentially, they were chosen to do that because they came with these innate gifts. We've gotten so far from that, I think, in in North America largely that people like, Oh, I'm going to go do that because it pays really well. You know, and I certainly as a massage therapy educator had students come into the course and say, well, I'm here because I can make X amount of dollars an hour. And within a year, I'm going to have a, a Mercedes and blah, 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 this and that. And I'd go through this whole, you know, massage therapy math 101 where I'd break it all down for them. And ultimately we'd lose a half a dozen students. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> you know, it, because it's like, if you're choosing that for this reason, this may not be the best fit for you. It's not that you're a bad person. It just may not be the right fit for you. So I think in healthcare, that compassionate presence piece, that has to be the essential ingredient in, in my humble perspective. I, I'm, I'm totally with you on that. And one, one thing I really, as someone who often is a thinking in the big picture level, um, I, I like to, to imagine, well, how did we get here? Um, it didn't just happen kind of randomly. So it, it's not that it, it's not that the science or the medicine as we know it, more of an allopathic model, is bad. It has some real strengths. I love science also. I, I hold both science and spirit with reverence, uh, different different ways, different kinds of reverence, perhaps. Um, and and I feel like the, the healthcare model that we have in the States, let's say, really excels at acute emergency um, medicine and treatment and cure. And it just it has become too unidimensional to be able to manage chronic or systemic imbalance in, in disease. Um, and so... I don't throw out what happened that got us here. I want to learn from that and say along the way in our becoming enamored of some of these newer ways of thinking, we let go of and dismissed and discredited what has, it turns out, been a part of humankind for as long as we know. And that is a deeper understanding of healing and just what you were saying, Kathy, and understanding that there are gifts. Yes, we can cultivate them, but some people really have significant gifts around healing and an ability to see 
and understand the the ineffable, you know, and have understandings. We are living within the natural world on this planet. We are not separate from it. It's not a backdrop for us to live our human lives. And so what is our understanding about our relationship to animals, our relationship to plants? You know, what is it when people say food is medicine? and that there are plants that can be medicine. It, it's not saying you have to choose one or the other. I'm interested in how to, and that's why I keep coming back to a more integrative approach, is I don't wanna diss anybody if there's something strong and worthy in what that approach brings. But I am interested in the idea of we evolve in our understanding and we can bring the best forward um, and we can remember and get re-educated many of us, uh, about some of the older ways and the older wisdom. And I don't mean that everything that happened older in the past was, was, was perfect and we just need to forget allopathic medicine and go back. I don't believe that at all. However, I think there has been a, a profound loss of an understanding of healing and um, the elements that can be brought in on the level of the body, the mind, the soul, the spirit. And I, I think that's such an important point about it doesn't have to be a choice between either or, which was always my issue with our world being put into the alternative category, alternative to what, you, <laughs> you know, so it, it is, it is about the stuff that works. Yeah. You know, why, why can't we come together yes. and figure out, exactly. you know, what is good for the individual because what might work in combination for Cal might be very different than what might work in combination for me. So that very patient centered model where you're asking the individual, what do you value? What matters to you? What do you feel will support you the best? So yeah, the whole integrative concept. Right. And I, and I see you all being leading voices in that and being able to, to um, bring massage therapy out of the alternative world where it's more kind of feeling and qualitative oriented and, you know, to really say, well, can we understand this? What is happening here? Let's name it. Let's, because in naming it, we understand it and we tend to value it, you know? So I, I really appreciate, um, you know, people who have a gift for understanding how to work cross-culturally, you know, and can speak the languages of medicine and healthcare and science and research and the healing arts and a certain comfort with, I don't have words and I don't totally understand this, but this is what I'm seeing. And this is the value of this particular quality of healing that this is bringing. So, uh, you know, I, what, what you all are bringing in that is such an important voice. Well, and I feel like this is such a timely episode because we, I think that um, as things are quote, going back to normal or, you know, come hell or high water, people, momentum is picking up and you can sort of feel it. And we did have this interesting year of sort of forced vulnerability and slowing down that I've heard many people refer to as like, wow, like I'm closer to my friends or I'm closer to my family or, or I got divorced or I moved or I like, I noticed that my time was limited or that, you know, I was in kind of a limbo and that, you know, it reminds me of this. Um, there's a poem by Rumi called don't go back to sleep. And it's really short, but when you said like, you know, Jan, that when you're working with people who thought they had more time, who are constantly reminding you that none of us has more time, that 
um, I think he says like the, the breeze at dawn has secrets. And so don't go back to sleep and you have to ask for what you want. Don't go back to sleep that people are going back and forth across the door sill where the two worlds meet. Don't go back to sleep. The door is round and open. And I feel like as the momentum picks up, the door is closing and we're not putting a stopper in it. And, and we had this great opportunity and you would think a year would be long enough, but I think we, a lot of us spent a year holding our breath and we're just so glad to be able to exhale, even though it's not even a legit exhale <laughs> that we will miss the, the opportunity to hold on to what was useful about that. And, right. and I, I, I feel like everything you've been talking about is that's exactly what we got to do on some level last year, just because of all the circumstance and that we have an opportunity to keep that, that door open. We do, and we know something about that, right? I mean, the, the human wisdom that's been passed down through millennia, uh, you know, often there's a piece about um, the practices that keep us awake because we know this about ourselves, right? We know that we can fall asleep. It's a little easier maybe in modern times for those of us who have the privilege of being able to have shelter and food uh, and, and safety to be able to have these more existential or self-actualizing questions. But um, we know that there are practices that help to remind us. And there will be practices that we and this is probably something that will be good to talk about, like in reintegrating back into post-COVID life. What are the practices that will help keep you in touch with what you discovered was really valuable to you? Because at least in the United States, we have so many ways we can numb out. So many ways. Be distracted and numb out. Well, I think it's probably modern life everywhere. And so what is it that I'm going to commit to and how do I hold myself accountable? And, you know, having conversations like this with, with others is, is helpful. And I think the practices help to ground how I'm going to keep this perspective when it gets easy to go down internet rabbit holes, when, um, I don't get enough sleep and I'm just fed up when I get into crisis, uh, in my family, when I end up, you know, with a scary new diagnosis or whatever, you know, life will, life will happen to all of us. So I really appreciate you saying that because it is an opportunity, just like a scary diagnosis is yeah, uh, uh, yeah, an opportunity and coming reintegrating, boy, the more we're talking about it, I'm thinking this would really be good for, for us to write about more and talk about more. Absolutely. A wise, like what is the wise reintegration, not just the efficient, reintegration, but the wise reintegration, what might it look like? And that was, that was a smooth, um, though unplanned segue to, um, really invite people to come to the Heal Well interdisciplinary, uh, private community. Um, please join us in there where we're having, uh, real discussions, vulnerable discussions, um, holding each other accountable without all caps uh, and really um, inviting each other to uh, keep looking in the mirror in, in a kind and um, engaged way. So come check us out at community.healwell.org. And uh, we you'll see, oh, we're talking about all kinds of stuff in there um, from social justice to end of life issues to um, COVID and, and all the rest uh, with all of our friends from social work and psychotherapy and medicine and nursing and uh, comparing notes about what it means to be a human who cares for humans. So 
as always, Jan, when um, I'm talking with you, I'm like, wait, it's already been an hour. That's not cool. <laughs> uh, but we do have to let our listeners get back to their lives. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's right. So That's they right. can wisely reintegrate. That's Beautiful. right. Beautiful. Exactly. So thank you so much for being with us. And uh, thank you all kind listeners for joining us for another episode of Interdisciplinary. Please go tell the world to uh, come and check us out on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and all the places you can get podcasts. Leave us a review on social media. Spread the word on Facebook and Instagram and wherever you do those sorts of things. I don't even know where all the kids are doing that, but go spread the word. And uh, Jan, we'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Yes. Thank you all. You're doing beautiful work here. Really about it. Thank you. Interdisciplinary is produced by Healwell. Our theme music is by Harry Pickens. You can send us feedback at info at healwell.org. That's info at healwell.org. New episodes will be posted weekly via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and our Facebook page. Thank you.